Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Philip James Dodd joins us today. He is a residential designer and architectural historian. He is the author of The Art of Classical Details, Theory, Design, and Craftsmanship. That's one book. Another book is An Ideal Collaboration. His new book is, uh, frankly, a stunningly lovely volume entitled An American Renaissance. Beaux-Arts Architecture in New York City. Welcome, Mr. Dodd. Thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, first, big, big uh, definition question. What is Beaux-Arts Architecture, art? Uh, where does it come from? Uh, why did it arise? Uh, what decades did it... <laughs> what, what is Beaux-Arts Architecture? So, so basically, um, we'll, we'll, we'll reverse into that a little bit. So... The, um, the American Renaissance is basically just another term for what um, uh, Mark Twain called the Gilded Age. And it's, that's a period which is right after um, the Civil War, lasts from about 1870 to 1930. And this is a period of time where America goes from being really an agricultural country to being the foremost industrial power in the world. And part of that is because of all the different technological advancements of the day. Um, the automobile, the electric light bulb, the telephone, and most importantly, steel, because steel allowed to have the, uh, the transcontinental railroad and it allowed our buildings to no longer be load-bearing masonry buildings and they could literally physically and metaphorically reach for the skies. So. Um, in, in my book, Julian Fellows, the, the creator of Downton Abbey, wrote the, um, the new TV show, The Gilded Age on HBO, wrote the foreword. And in it, he said this was the first time that Americans had more money than anybody else in Europe. And their goal, uh, there's this elite, you know, J.P. Morgan, uh, Otto Kahn, amongst others, they wanted to create a city. Back then, New York wasn't, you know, particularly architecturally a very interesting city it was a city of brownstones they wanted to create a city that would um rival uh the great cities of europe well london paris rome and they needed an architectural style and that architectural style turned out to be um the beaux-arts and so beaux-arts is nothing other than french for for fine arts and uh, American Beaux-Arts is a little bit different than the strict, strict interpretation of French Beaux-Arts. So the term really comes from the school in Paris, the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. Um, remember at the time, there was no architecture schools in America. 
everyone was self-taught. It was a, a gentlemanly pastime like um, Thomas Jefferson uh, did. And so the first American to go to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts was Richard Morris Hunt. And Hunt is, uh, you know, if you go up to Newport, the Breakers, Marble House, there are all his designs, uh, built more in Asheville, North Carolina. Yep. And the second was Henry Hobb Richardson, who's the designer of Trinity Church in Boston. And then the third was Charles McKim, the senior partner of what would become McKim, Needham White. And after him, the floodgates literally opened. And so when they were studying at the Ecole, they were taught the architecture of ancient Greece, of Imperial Rome, of the Italian and French Renaissance, of the Baroque periods. And then they traveled around Europe and traveling around Europe, they came across the medieval architecture that was in France and, and, and primarily in England and um, what was getting you know, built in the Victorian era. And they came back to America and they basically amalgamated all these different styles together. So American Beaux-Arts has got this big, broad umbrella. It, it it's, uh, encompasses the, what you think of as big Beaux-Arts buildings like Grand Central or New York Public Library, the Metropolitan Museum, but it also includes uh, kind of, you know, um, um, medieval buildings like the uh, Woolworth building, uh, skyscrapers, uh, Cass Gilbert. Cass Gilbert uh, you know, designed the, the uh, Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. So he was very versatile in going with this um, Gothic vernacular or going with high classical. And so it really is this broad uh, 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 kind of styles that, that actually... No, very few buildings were actually strict interpretations. They actually blended a lot of things together to make it a very distinctly American style. You, you know, I was going to ask you, uh, you, you see some, some of those buildings that you mentioned, like, like the, uh, uh, the one in, in North Carolina. Uh, does the blending that the Americans take, you know, a little, little you know, Italian here, whatever, did the European architects frown? upon what the Americans came up with or do, well, well, well we're going to get to the, the book, of course, but do they look at these monuments that you have profiled in the book and think, oh, you know, they're very American in, in some way. Is, is there, is there admiration over there? I, I'll, that's a hard question to answer. I'll, 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 I'll tell you my, I, I came to the States in the fall of 1996, and I came on a um, one-year internship, uh, carrying one suitcase, making $10 an hour. And 26 years later, here I am. Um, and I came expecting to find a city of skyscrapers. And that first weekend, I discovered New York City was a city of these wonderful Beaux-Arts buildings. And so I think it's a subject that's not really talked about um, I think most people don't realize how many just stunning buildings um, uh, are here. And so um, I don't think people look down at them. I think, you know, quietly, they're probably quite envious of them. Mm. But um, I think a lot of people just, you know, beyond the usual suspects, a lot of people don't know these buildings. Well, uh, you, 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 you get to some of the famous ones. Let, let, let's get to the book. Uh, the structure of the book is 
really a, a profile of 20 buildings in the city with lush photography of of each one. Do, do, do you want to do you want to say how you put this book together, the photographer, the buildings you chose? Give us the genesis of the volume. So uh, the photographer is a, a good friend of mine uh, called Jonathan Wallen, and John had worked uh, on a number of books before. Uh, on the Kim Eden White and other architects of this era. And one day I was just talking to him and I said, you know, all these monographs have been um, published on the work of one firm or one architect, but there's never kind of been a greatest hits. I'm like, you know, is that something you'd be interested in doing? And he's like, yeah. And so I said, well, I don't have any budget. I said, but I can get you into whatever building you want me to get you into. And then I had to back up that boast and so we, we decided, you know, we put together a, um, a group of buildings. And um, the first building we actually photographed was the Cunard building, which is down on Bowling Green. Uh, that was a, a building I had been introduced to when I first came to the States. They used to have a, uh, a post office inside it. And um, this is, you know, this is before the internet had really took off and before um, emails had took off. And so one of my colleagues said, if you ever need to mail a postcard back home, go on a Saturday morning down to the Cunard building and you'll get quite an experience. And so, um, and I think when we did that, John didn't know anything about that building and was just like blown away by it. Mm. And so we decided then that we needed really to have a mix of well-known buildings and then obscure buildings. And we decided that we would only feature buildings where we could have access to the interior as well as the exterior. So that's why we don't have buildings like um, the Flatiron Building because it's really got no interior left to it. Mm. Um, and so you reach out to these different buildings, some are easier than others. Believe it or not, the federal government was especially easy to deal with when we mm. photographed Grant's tomb and dealing with the GSA to photograph the Custom House. Um, was very easy. Other other buildings were took a long time and a lot of effort to get them to uh, agree. And what you kind of found is once you got some momentum, we could go to the Frick and say, well, the Morgan Library is going to be in it. And then they would say, okay. Right. And the reason the Morgan agreed to be in it was because the university club was going to be in it. Mm. And so um, it, it kind of d develops its own speed. Now, we had a couple of buildings turned us down, said no. And since then, they both reached out to say, if you do a volume two, can we be in it? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think they realized what it was going to, to be because it's, you know, it's, a, it's a big buck. It's 400 pages. It, it, it measures 11 by 14. It weighs 10 pounds. There's 300 you know, new color photographs um, that are full page or double page and a few fold outs as well. And, and let me, let me say something quick, quickly. Uh, you've got these, again, fantastic photographs, but just to let readers know, we have a lot of text here. This isn't a coffee table book. This has tremendous historical knowledge recounted for every building. You, you have the complete genesis of, of, of the the design, the construction, uh, the 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 people involved in in the project and the history of the building uh, ever since then. So that it, it's really, I mean, it's 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 an aesthetic book. It's also a scholarly book. 
Uh, I, I, I appreciate that because it's, you know, I, I always joke that people, first of all, comment on the size of it. Then they comment on the beautiful photography. And then they ask me if it's coming out in an audio book because no one ever reads anymore. Um, and when we, you know, so when it was, it was funny, I wanted to do a book that, that was an architecture book, but wasn't an architecture book. My, 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 my parents couldn't care less about architecture. So I used them as a litmus test, but they loved the stories, the storytelling. And that's right. what I wanted to do. Is and the characters. Yeah. And, you know, talk about, um, um, you know, the different characters, the, the, the patrons, Alva Vanderbilt, uh, JP Morgan, and, and the people that really created New York City. And so um, the buildings almost become a backdrop. And, that, and that's why, uh, you know, Julian Bellows came on board to write the foreword, because in some ways it was very similar to his TV shows where the architecture is the backdrop. But it's about storytelling. It's about drama. And when... Um, I, I, I always say that there was, just like architecture, there was four parts of doing a book. The first part is going out and getting all the permissions, which is, like I said, sometimes is easy, sometimes wasn't. The second part is the fun part, is doing all the photography. And so I would go on shoots with John and I would tell him what I wanted. And uh, that was the fun bit. Um, the third part, the most laborious part, is the research and the writing. Yeah. And then the last part of it, is the editing is is the actual design of the book and and this is the architect in me i went and i looked at books that i admired aesthetically and i did a study on them to see what was the percentage of images versus words pages of words versus images. and i didn't want to have because the photography is so beautiful i wanted the photography to be full pages i didn't want little pictures and so we typically some, have of them, well, some of them fold out yeah, and we have a full page of text, and um, and so I went through and I I, I calculated what the what the uh, ratio was, and so when for you know for a building like the University Club, we you know looked at the photographs and said, okay, so we're going to have I can't remember twenty photos, so that equates to five pages of text, and that kind of uh, um, led to 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 the kind of the narrative and what I wrote. Then when the, the publisher laid it out, either I had to edit a few lines out so it would fit perfectly, or if I had an extra half page of, you know, and they, and they would be happy just to leave it blank, blank page. And I was like, well, that's a waste of, waste of space. So I added more text in it so I could literally, and every inch is filled with either an image or text. Well, let's turn to one of the more famous buildings uh, in in the book and in in our country, Grand Central Station. We are lucky that it still exists, aren't we? Yep. So um, just to correct you, it's Grand Central Terminal. I'm, that's I a, correct. Uh, Grand, Grand Central. Yes. Grand Central. A station. So there is there a technical difference? A station. The train is going through the terminal. It stops here. Is that yeah, the actually, actually Grand Central Station is the name for the post office that's inside Grand Central. Got it. And Got so, it. Um, yeah, I mean, this was. I mean, basically, this was there. There was two great train stations uh, built in this era. There was there was Grand Central, and then before then, Penn Station. And, um, you know, Penn Station really was this great uh, engineering achievement as they tunneled underneath um, the Hudson to, you know, to get trains in there. And 
um, this was a time where I, I'm going to get this wrong, but I think about 40% of all the stocks on the New York Stock Exchange were railroad companies. Uh, yeah. It was huge. And obviously, um, a couple of generations later, it's not quite so big because we've got automobiles, we've got uh, airplanes, passenger planes. And so people aren't relying on the trains as more. And so um, the train stations started to come down. They occupied a, a vast amount of space of, of, of expensive land in, in New York City. And so Penn Station came down. And you know, what a lot of the preservationists will say is, well, um, the outcry after Penn Station came down is what saved, is what then created the preservation movement in New York. And that's what saved buildings like Grand Central. And, th and that is partially true, but there's still a lot of buildings demolished under the Preservation Foundation's watch. Hmm. Um, uh, probably the, the, the most famous was the Singer Building by Ernest Flagg, and the when the Singer building was built, it was the tallest building in the world. And hmm. that was uh, the beautiful um, design, and that was knocked down to make way for the U.S. Steel building. Um, but, and, and, and interestingly, when Frank Woolworth was, was touring around England, he was on vacation, and, and he'd hired Cass Gilbert to design his new headquarters. But he had no desire for it to be the world's tallest building. But everywhere he went in Europe, everyone kept on asking him about the Singer building. Hmm. And so we realized what a great piece of PR it would be to actually have the greatest, you know, the tallest building in the world. And so he came back, asked uh, Kath Gilbert to change the plans and huh. create the tallest building in the world. Right, right. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Well, the Penn Station came down. They they tore it down, and they, they they took all those. Didn't they take all the capitals and the 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 columns and just dump them in a swamp in New Jersey? Yeah. And the most, then, for the most part, yes, they did. And then they built this this horror of of the new Penn. You know, the 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 follow up Penn Station. Uh, were they going to Were they going to modernize? To use a euphemism. Uh, Grand Central, but there were some people who actually stepped in. Yeah, I mean, Grand, Grand, Grand Central uh, was basically falling apart, and uh, its its owners were letting it fall apart so that they could uh, um, make a better case for demolishing it. And uh, it was really uh, one one of the great uh, campaigners was Jackie Anassis um, to 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 save it. And since then, they had a couple of, of um, restorations were involved. Um, the, the first one, not so great, it actually involved Donald Trump. It was part of a deal. That's where he acquired um, the, uh, the railroad tracks on the Upper East Side where Trump City is, because that was part of a deal he promised to, to uh, restore Grand Central. Um, 
didn't particularly do a great job. And so later on, it was restored to what you now see. But for example, when you look up at the ceiling in Grand Central, you, you, know, you see the beautiful ceiling with the constellations on it. Um, before its restoration, you couldn't see any of that. It was all black and it was black from cigarette smoke. Huh. And um, there was a hole in the ceiling. They, they had um, placed a rocket in there on display. The rocket was a little bit too tall and poked a hole in the ceiling. And um, it's, it's, and actually when they restored it, they left one little patch of it black so you could see the color that it, it had become. And so um, now it's, it's, it's never looked any better. And I think, you know, that's, uh, people have learned over the last few generations how to actually take care of old buildings. You know, unfortunately, many of the buildings were, um, they tried to restore them and actually did more damage to them because the, the, the products that they used to wash them actually were very corrosive. Huh. So uh, the Washington Square Arch is a great example of that. You go up to it and you see kind of the, the, the face of Washington as, as, as eroded. Well, that's really quite recently. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, what, it, it's, you know, it's now one of the most popular tourist destinations in New York City, correct? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, and I, I write about this actually at the end of the book, but, yeah. you know, we have a mixture of buildings that are, um, some of them are, are publicly owned uh, also privately owned, some a city run, city, some are uh, um, uh, run by the federal government, and so all these different buildings. You know, these are these are the patrons of the buildings, and some of them really, you know, uh, New York Public Library is a great example. It's not run by the city; it's 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 its own entity, and the amount of money that they've put into um, you know maintaining it and restoring it is you know, is absolutely amazing. And, you know, um, some buildings are able to do that better than others. And so the two, at, at the end, we have a little appeal page for two of the buildings that are featured. One is the, um, the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, which is on Riverside Drive, uh, which is literally falling apart. And um, the city of New York don't really um, politically or financially want to, 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 to spend any money restoring it. Uh, which which is a great shame, and mm. then the other building is the Gould Memorial Library by Stanford White, which is now part of Bronx Community College, and because it's in the Bronx, it gets very little attention. If it was in Manhattan, it would be considered one of the great architectural wonders of the city. Mm. Um, so uh, we have a little appeal to have, to, to uh, you know, ask people to contribute towards the uh, funds that have been placed to save those two buildings. Let, let me stick one thing about Grand Central, and, and this is part of the storytelling value of the book. One of the parties involved in Grand Central was named Whitney Warren. Uh, he, he, he ended up a little bit in, in disgrace, didn't he? What's the story here? So, um, so Whitney Warren, he was a cousin of the Vanderbilt family, and the Vanderbilts obviously uh, ran the railroad uh, that, that went through Grand Central. And they had a competition to, um, for, for, for the design and a company uh, in Minnesota, uh, Reading STEM, um, uh, won the competition. And 
uh, Whitney Warren had never really didn't hadn't even entered it. He was uh, he'd come back from the Ecole de Beaux Arts. Uh, he designed a stunning building in New York, the uh, New York Yacht Club. And he went to his cousin and said, you know what, I want to be involved with this project. So um, they made him co-architect. They made him and his partner um, co co-architects. So it was you know, Warren and Wetmore. Uh, Charles Wetmore was was his partner. Uh, he was basically an attorney by trade. And um, the two firms really did, didn't get on well together, but they both did very different things that, that uh, make the building as beautiful as it is. And so um, Reed and Stem were the ones who brought in the idea of having ramps. Um, Penn, one of the reasons Penn Station didn't really work very well as a train station, it was full of great staircases. There was no ramps, really. Um, and then they also came up with the idea of, the, of splitting the traffic to go around it on, on Park Avenue. And so it was really, they brought in some, some great functional ideas. And then um, uh, uh, Warren was really responsible for the, for the aesthetic look of it. Uh, you know, it looks like a you know, great triumphal arch. And after one of the Minnesota architects passed away, they uh, joined construction, they, 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 they traveled back to Minnesota to attend the funeral. And during that time, uh, Warren and Wetmore uh, went back um, to the Vanderbilts and said, hey, you know, just kick them off, let us finish this off. And uh, they did. And the Minnesota firm um, sued them and, and won. And basically, Warren Wetmore had their architectural license stripped away from them, uh, which is why towards the end of their career, you see so many of their buildings overseas. They actually designed um, Selfridges in London huh. and because they weren't allowed to practice in, in America anymore. What is Track 61 in Grand Central? No, so I've, <laughs> I have forgotten more than what I wrote. Um, so I believe track 61, is that, is that the track which the, uh, which, um, FDR, use, yeah, FDR to kind of, to, to, to go, um, um, un undetected track as he came into New York city, no one could see him in a wheelchair and it would go to, um, um, to the, to the, um, the Waldorf Astoria. Yeah. It's, it, yeah. You, you write about it. It's a secret track. It, it, you, you can keep everything private. You can keep the crowds away. You know? it, was, it was so they couldn't. So it was so that the public couldn't see. But he was in a wheelchair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, all right. Uh, another famous building that you profile: the New York Public Library. It's just around the corner from the First Things offices, where we're where we are now. Uh, what? Who who wanted a big giant library in New York City? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, it might be difficult to, to, to kind of explain this, but there was, there was a time where New York was battling with Chicago and Boston to see which would be the great um, uh, cultural city in, a, in, a, in America. Obviously, Washington was the political, New York was already the financial, but it wasn't yeah. set what was going to be the cultural capital. Of, of America and uh, Boston struck out first with um, the Boston Public Library, which was designed by Charles McKim. And for New Yorkers, uh, that was unthinkable that Boston could have a building like that and New York didn't. 
And so back then there was only there was three libraries or there was two two public libraries in New York. There was the Astor Library and the Lennox Library. And the impetus for New York Public Library came when um, Samuel Tilden passed away. And Samuel Tilden, uh, his old house is, is in the book, it's in that, what is now the National Arts Club. And um, Tilden was a, uh, he's one of those people who time has forgotten, I think, unless you're a big political junkie. Um, no. He was, you know, he brought down Boss Tweed and, and, and his, his ring, um, became, uh, was New York governor and ran for president. And he um, lost the electoral college by a single vote. Hmm. And everyone thinks of that now as being uh, a modern day occurrence with Al Gore and with Hillary Clinton. This happened over 100 years ago. The difference is um, Samuel Tilden is the only person to have got a majority. So he went over 50% and still lost. Uh, with Gore and, and Clinton, they didn't because of third party candidates. So they never cracked the 50% threshold. Hmm. But anyway, when he passed away, he had a huge library and he uh, instructed his trustees to um, create what is New York Public Library. And so they actually merged the three collections together. And if you walk up to the front of the building in the attic, you actually see it's carved there. Uh, you know, everyone looks at the lions, uh, which were originally called uh, Leo Astor and Leo Lennox before they <laughs> became Patience and Fortitude. And, um, but if you look up in the attic, you can see it says, you know, the library is a combination of these three um, collections that were put together. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was basically the genesis for it. Um, it took a tremendous amount of time to get built. It took about, I think, 16 years to get built. And, yeah. Um, part of that was its location. What was previously there was the old reservoir, the old Croton Reservoir. And, and everything's interconnected. So that was the water supply for New York City before Central Park was built and the reservoir was put in Central Park. Once that reservoir went in, they didn't need the Croton Reservoir anymore. And so that was demolished to make way um, for the New York Public Library. You, you've got some nice pictures of some of the artwork uh, inside. We've got a mural of Prometheus. Yep. We have this big painting of Moses and and the tablets uh, as well. You wanted to, you wanted to get the artwork, not just the architecture. Well, in, in you know, a, a huge you know a, a huge uh, part of Beaux Arts of the Beaux Arts style is it's it's about the Allied art. So it's not just architecture; it's how architecture works with um, with mural painting and and particularly with sculpture. Sculpture. Uh, an allegorical sculpture was a huge part of um, of, of the architectural design, um, how these buildings were embellished. Now, the interesting thing is with with the, the paintings that you mentioned at New York Public Library, they were added later. They weren't there when it was built. Hmm. Uh, they were added after the Second World War um, when um, uh, the WPA came in to, to and uh, you know to pay people to, um, to beautify buildings. And they were all added then. Um, uh, even later is in the, um, the periodical room is these beautiful murals of all the different publishing houses in New York, which was done by Richard Haas and Richard Haas is still alive. And so um, they, there's, there's a lot of work that was done, not original to it. 
Hmm. Hmm. Last question, uh, and, and then we'll sum up. Is it simply too expensive to build anything like this today? No, it's not. And you, are, are, are we thinking um, of it? Is there a, a classicism? I mean, you, you, you call yourself a classicist. Is there a, a revival of classicism going on? In residential architecture, yes. I think in collegiate architecture, yes. And actually in churches, you see a lot of traditional churches now being um, being built. And so, um, but I think that when it comes to business, um, people, uh, I think businessmen, it's funny, they, they want their building to represent the future. They want it to, to be, you know, high tech and looking forward. And then when they come home, they want to have family values and traditions. So they want a house that represents that. And so, um, you know, architecture is always a tool to, to, um, to represent what your, you know, ideals are. And I think there's this perception that it is expensive, but, it, but it's also maybe perhaps elitist. Uh, I think that's especially the case in England, uh, partly because of the, the old class structure and the country houses. Um, I don't think that's really the same over here. Um, now, one of, one of the interesting things in the Gilded Age, and I write about this, is there were some people who came from you know, old family money, um, uh, J.P. Morgan. The Morgan was, uh, you know, was was a wealthy old family. So, um, so were the Roosevelts. And um, but then you get people who went from rags to riches. You get the uh, Woolworths of the world, and um, it's 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 an amazing. So I don't think people look at it the same way, perhaps over here. But that is a big fallacy. But it, you know, it's too expensive to be done. It's not. It, it's it's um, it can be done, and um, I, I think it's more ideological why it's not done. Yeah. Um, well, there, there are uh, again there are eighteen more buildings in the book that we we didn't really mention, including a mausoleum, you know, in a cemetery. You've got some great characters profiled in the book, such as Alva Erskine Smith. Vanderbilt, Belmont. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, uh, she, she, was, she was quite something. Uh, the book, however, is An American Renaissance, Beaux-Arts Architecture in New York City. Uh, Mr. Dodd, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.